the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Richard Wagner's final opera, Parsifal, it is not an opera technically, but a Bühnenweihfestspiel, a, a stage festival play, uh, has a central character called Amfortas. Amfortas is a central character, although he spends much of his time off stage. The leader of a community called the Knights of the Grail, his job is to celebrate Holy Communion using the cup, the chalice, the Holy Grail, in which our Savior's blood was, according to legend, gathered as he hung on the cross. Amfortas has succumbed to the lure of a temptress who is herself under the spell of a malevolent magician. And in the act of entering into her embrace, he is wounded with a spear. He does not die, but the wound refuses to heal. His life's blood slowly oozes out day after day. As a result, he is too weak and too impure to hold the grail in the act of consecration, and the knights are denied the life-giving sacrament. The community begins to die with him. In the end, he was redeemed by a young hero, Parsifal, a pure fool, who is tempted by that same temptress but does not succumb. And with that same spear with which the wound was made, Parsifal touches Amfortas' wound and heals him. The opera closes with the celebration of communion. Wagner had planned to write an opera on Jesus of Nazareth, but he did not live to get very far. He got far enough for his friend Friedrich Nietzsche to complain that he was now slobbering at the foot of the Christian cross. But the theme of redemption, redemption by love, usually the love of a pure young woman who sacrifices her life to redeem her fallen hero, is the red thread that holds all of Wagner's work together. Parsifal. Now that seems worlds away from what we've heard today, but it is indeed into that same world of redemption of women, of wounds that do not heal, that we are led today. Jesus, the Redeemer, encounters two women. One, just on the eve of her womanhood, just 12 years old, he raises from the dead. A pure young woman, at least in that sense, whom he redeems. The other, a woman of indeterminate age, has been for 12 years suffering a loss of blood, a hemorrhage that cannot be healed. She is not dead, and as her last hope, she reaches out to touch Jesus in the public square. This is taboo, of course. She is considered unclean, impure by any standards. And for a woman to touch a man at that time is unthinkable. The power goes out of Jesus and into her, even involuntarily. Who did that, he asks, apparently unknowing. Your faith has saved you, he pronounces. It is interesting how even the narrative here and the way they hook together nests the raising of the daughter of Jairus into that of this brave, bold woman in the marketplace. Even the locations could not be more different. The bustling public square crowded with commerce through which the woman that Jesus redeems has to fight her way with her last strength just to touch the hem of his garment. 
the still darkness, already slightly dank, of the inner sanctum, the death chamber, from which all but a few family members are banished, and in the end, at the moment of the miracle, in which Jesus and the young girl are alone as she is laid out on her bed, again an unthinkable taboo then as now. I do not want to make too much of this. I do not need to. The power of the narrative speaks for itself to the deepest reaches of our being. In some sense, nothing changes as the millennia roll along. The element of trust, of faith, which is so all-important in all of this, and the sense that this takes all of Jesus' strength. It is no easy matter, no hocus-pocus, no incantation with a few prayers and the wave of a wand, even by a good magician. No, these acts of healing, I will say it again, take all of Jesus' strength. And that strength is found in the depth of a soul so full of compassion, this compassion, this abiding feeling for the suffering of God's, of his fellow creatures so deep, so full, so abiding, that it becomes passion, the passion of the walk to Calvary, where his blood oozes out, no, is poured out from his hands, from his feet, from his lacerated back, from the wound of the spear in his side. All for this, all for us, all for the unspeakable suffering <clears throat> that we inflict on one another, as we did on him, on ourselves, on our fellow creatures, on this planet, leaving the old to die in isolation and ripping the unborn from the womb and young children from their mother's arms, all the while stoking up the blast furnaces to poison the atmosphere and turn creation into a charred corpse, but not in our lifetime, and that's all that matters. So what? So what do we do? For he created all things that they might exist, says that reading from the intertestamental period. He created all things that they might exist, they might live, and the generative forces of the world are wholesome, and there is no destructive poison in them. And the dominion of Hades is not on earth, for righteousness is immortal. Righteousness, justice, the two words are always the same in scripture, is immortal. We set our sights then above the degradation, the pulling down of what was once the promise of a shining city on a hill, and from the ruins, the embers of our disappointments, our dashed dreams, we lift the hope of something better, a kingdom greater than any earthly kingdom that has come and gone or is yet to come, a kingdom built not by human hands but built by faith, with human blood assuredly and with much suffering. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Not by his riches do we become rich, as our mind jumps to think. It doesn't say that. His poverty is his gift to us, and by that poverty, we find the riches he intends for us. Jesus shows us the way of salvation, the way by which this world will be redeemed, not just at the ballot box or in the courts. That makes us 
our circumstances easier. Yes, and more than that, it saves the lives of those who cannot save themselves. No small thing. But it hardens rather than changes the hearts of those who are opposed. The apostle teaches us to obey the civil government, but he does not try to redeem it. Save one soul at a time from the inside out. Now we enjoy a more participatory form of government than Paul did, but the governance still starts with self-governance. We have to get our own souls in order before we can go out to fix the world. We have to heal the wound in our own soul before we start calling out the wound in the world. We must all play our roles out there for sure, articulating our dreams and our complaints civilly and unequivocally, as we can do even when we gather in demonstrations. But the ideals of the left and the right, all of which aspire toward a common good, cannot become the ideologies that aspirate us and spit us out. For over the soaring spires and gilded domes of earthly powers, Jesus' kingship overarches everything. He is Lord now, and this is his world now. No one knows it yet, but we do. As we wait eagerly to see where our life's blood is to be poured out, for the love of others, for the redemption of our Father's world, let us put, wait with eager, attentive readiness and let our willingness to formulate our desires into visions and then into blueprints and plans for actions be matched by our completing it out of what we have, of the work that we have done within to set our souls in order. From that, we give whatever we may. And he will more than match our feeble efforts if we do them out of a pure heart, out of gratitude and out of hope. For he will let the power of a loving God be drawn out by those who kiss the hem of his garment. And he will raise to new and shining life those dreams that we have had, dreams that seemed impossible that his kingdom might yet come in ways great and small. But whatever is to come, whatever he has in store for this great nation even, great in so many ways, great in passion, great in an imagination, great in compassion, great in grace, great in generosity and in creative energy, is that light to the nations now being pushed under a bushel basket or buried behind a wall. No, that lamp stand still stands, and maybe, just maybe, may it be, we will all do our part with pure hearts in setting the light of faith there where it belongs. Amen.